Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time with our Amplitude and T-Rex analog modeling software. Now, IK has created the ultimate all-in-one bundle for bands and engineers, the Total Studio 2 Max, combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia, musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, and Bring Me the Horizon. And we give you the raw multi-track so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder. Pro quality, multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Okay, so Jake Subin, welcome to the URM podcast. I'm glad that we finally could make this work. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And so I know you as the chief engineer for Telefunk, and I know that that's not the whole story, but could you tell us what that entails um, and... I'm also curious about how that even came to be. Yeah. So my job is split into two categories here at Telefunk. And one is QC for all the condenser mics. And one is mixing and recording. On the QC side is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's basically real-world testing of all of our condenser microphones prior to them shipping out. So the mixing and recording side would be any content that's driven by Telefunken, whether it be live from the lab, which is our video series, or um, some kind of promo that we're doing. Um, and then we also have a commercial recording studio here that you can book out, and I run all those sessions, whether it's assisting for another engineer or actually doing the engineering myself. Um, as well as any mixing projects that would come in. And then every once in a while, we do live events here where uh, we'll have a band come in, we'll have a crowd come in, it'll be exactly like a live show. We have a front of house engineer, a monitor engineer, and then I'm getting a ISO split and I'm doing a live to broadcast mix for the band. And that's basically what I do here, very similar to any recording studio with the exception that most of the content is driven by Telefunken. Um, which is obviously, um, you know, it's every, it doesn't need to be said, but which is obviously a classic company that has a huge array of products, not just microphones. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah. So we have microphones, headphones, DIs, um, and we're in, in those situations, uh, we're able to like the live in the lab series or the live events or any other content that we're driving, we're able to take those products and test them real world. You know, it's, it's definitely one thing to put a microphone through, uh, it's testing like anechoic chambers or through an APX you know, any kind of like mathematical testing or theoretical testing um, or even practical, you know, electrical testing. But it's a completely different thing to put it in a real world situation. It's interesting that you say that. Um, and I'm probably going to get blasted by someone on your staff <laughs> for saying this. But I've just noticed that um, there's a lot of up and coming engineers that will look at the spec sheets for a product, be it a microphone or a A to D converter, and they will go just by what's on the spec sheets. And so if one piece of gears uh, specs match another piece of gear specs, they'll believe that there's no difference when in reality, anyone who makes records and who has any sort of an ear will tell you there's a major difference, especially with converters. Um, and you will see people go to war about this topic 
online, especially. Uh, so it's good to hear someone who uh, who says that, yeah, it, it's one thing in a lab, it's one thing on paper, but it's a completely different story when you're actually trying to make music with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I thank you for saying that. I mean, I just, I can't stress this enough. And in my experience teaching, as well as working with interns or working with, uh, you know, out in the field doing consulting for other people, this is something that I, I just, nobody ever seems to like grasp the severity of it, which is you, it's a good well, word. Yeah, you mix with, or you mix and record, you do audio with your ears. It's, it's this like, uh, what does the waveform look like thing? Or what does the mic look like? Or, oh, look at this and look at that. And to me, I was always taught that you do this with your ears. It's your ears that are telling you the truth, not your eyes. Um, and, and a perfect example of that for me is meters. Um, I know a lot of people <laughs> rely on meters, but for me, I just... I've been in so many studios where the meters aren't telling me anything, you know. I don't know if they're calibrated or if they're broken, who knows. It's it's more practical for me to dial something in, listen to it. If it sounds good, who cares if the meter's doing nothing or pegging? Yeah, ab absolutely. And so do you kind of look at yourself as the uh, final line of defense almost in a way? when it comes to when it comes to actually putting this stuff through the real world tests yeah so um definitely i mean part the the other part of my job is doing qc so with the exception of the di's and the dynamic microphones all condenser microphones will come through me first before they ship out and i will do a real world listening test um, and there are some other tests that I'm doing here in the studio, but mostly it's just to make sure that, you know, what you're looking at on the computer, what you're looking at on the analysis is actually true in the real world. Do you, is it a proprietary thing or do you mind, uh, sharing a little bit about what goes into those tests? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so basically what I'm looking for is, um, the noise, because with the exception of the M60, um, in our condenser microphones, uh, they're tube microphones. And tubes inherently have, tube microphones inherently have more noise than solid state microphones, um, right? Because tubes, tubes are noisy. Um, so yep. one of the things we're looking for is that those tubes in the microphones are within our threshold of what's okay, you know, what's acceptable in the noise realm. And that's not just level. It could be the tube has a little sputteriness or fluctuation of noise or where the frequency of noise sits. Um, you know, to my ear, that may not be acceptable. And I may say to the tech, um, you know, can you give me another choice? Can you give me another tube? This one has this, that, or the other thing. Um, we're also looking at polarity to make sure that all of our microphones are consistently going out with the same polarity. Um, and that was, that decision was made prior to me coming here. Um, like what the polarity should be. Um, and then we're just for consistency reasons? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it, because we want to make sure that, you know, if you buy, let's say you buy a stereo pack from us or you buy, mm. you know, multiple mics from us, um, they're not, you know, one's one polarity and the other's the other polarity and you get them in, you're like, why don't these work? What's going on? Why is everything so thin? And, you know, that it, it's easier for us to ensure the highest possible quality. Um, the classic issue when you go about buying, uh, you know, Chinese-made tube oh, bikes on the sure. internet. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. For Never sure. know what you're getting. Exactly, exactly. And we want to ensure that, you know, we don't want to, um, we don't want to turn out products that you have to guess and you have to be worried about. And you have, oh, is this actually, the, you know, no, we want you to get that microphone. It sounds great right off the bat. You know, it's going to work. 
you know everything's correct. You can just plug it in and go. So how uh, how many times will you sometimes send something back? I'm just curious because I've seen software creation, for instance, and I know oh. that it can just take yeah. years longer than people expect just because of these bugs. And to the end user, it's, you know, it's frustrating. But to the people making it, you know, they're just trying to get it right and refusing to release something that's going to just break or spit out wildly different, uh, wildly different things uh, based on randomness. Um, they're doing their best, but it definitely takes way more revisions than you're used to. And the reason I'm asking is because I have never made gear in my life. I know <laughs> some guys... Some guys are all about it, but uh, I'm not one of those guys. So I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I mean that's a. It's nothing to that extent. I I will say the one thing that really blew me away um, when I came here because prior to Telefunken, I was working in commercial facilities in New York City, and when you're in a commercial facility. Um, you know, with large format consoles and lots of outboard gear, you're dealing with techs who come in to fix things um, inevitably because stuff breaks. The techs that work here by far to me are above and beyond, I would say, 99% of the techs that I've dealt with. Um, they just, they the attention to detail and the quality that they produce really is exemplary. Um, so as far as what I fail is is very, very small. And they've come to learn kind of through their own testing and the back and forth between us um, because it's not a wall, right? It, it's a it's a team effort to try to turn these things out. So I learn from them, they learn from me, and we are always talking and always shooting back and forth to try to find that um, – how to make each other's job easier. So, you know, with vacuum tubes, they can be a bit unpredictable sometimes. So maybe when they were tested at the tech side, they were fine, but whatever happened and they got to me and now it's not okay. Or there is a frequency range that I don't like coming from the noise that they couldn't pick up. And so I send it back. Um, but as far as revisions and like how many times I'm sending them back or how many I'm failing, it's fairly rare. Very, very, very interesting. I, I, does that make for any interesting challenges when they don't hear something that you hear? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the going joke. Uh, yeah, because uh, making records is, again, for me, it's an experience um, that I'm using, you know, my ears. I, I, I was brought up, you know, on the backside of the old school guys who these guys don't look at screens. They, you know, even if they had Pro Tools running, the Pro Tools was being operated by somebody else on the other side of the room. They were sitting in front yep. of the console and they were, you know, that's what they were looking at, the console and the band in front of them. So um, I have become accustomed to kind of like, uh, you know, you, you, you're able to pick things out a little better after using your ears for 15 years in a critical listening environment, right? Um. Absolutely. So, but for the techs, that may not be the case. Um, so a lot of times what it is, is I have to be able to translate what I'm hearing to something that they can literally go in and fix, which is for me been a learning experience to be like, okay, what do I hear? What could be causing it? And what could a possible fix be? <clears throat> present that to them, and then they can take it from there. That's really, really interesting to me. So um, you worked in a commercial facility, and I know that you uh, – facilities, and I know that you're freelance engineer as well as yeah. your gig for Telefunken. So I'm assuming that a big part of your stuff outside of Telefunken involves explaining to artists <laughs> how to change something or 
fix something that you hear in one way that they may or may not understand? How does it differ between uh, communicating that with, like, say, your studio clients versus techs at a major microphone company? Uh, well, thankfully, um, a lot of the techs here are musicians. Um, so uh, not as different as you may think. I think the things, um, when you're making a record, uh, what I found is that there's not as much, I'm always totally honest with people. I never want to put up a front, but there's a difference between being honest and being a jerk. Um, so, and yes. it, well, it's true. It's true. And, and I always have to keep in mind, and this is very difficult for me, but I always have to keep in mind, it's not my record. It's not my music. I'm making somebody else's record. And my job is to take their vision and get it, capture it and make it the best it can possibly be in their mind, not in mine. Um, so when I'm communicating with text, that's not really an issue. You know, it, I'm, I can be totally blunt and honest. And if I see something, you know, like whatever, I don't know, for example, we, we could take like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm moving the microphone around and something's rattling in there. I, I probably won't go to the tech and be like, this is just a fantastic microphone. And and that's a great shirt you're wearing, but this, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm just going to be like, Hey, you know, it sounds like something's going on. This is what I think here it is with a musician. Um, you know, if there's something, uh, we could take tone for instance, because that's always a big thing, you know, whether you're a guitarist or a bassist or a drummer, um, a lot of musicians kind of have their sound, their tone that they've been working on. Or what they think is their tone. Right, exactly. So it's my job to never put up a front, but do it in a way that doesn't hinder anybody because that can totally stop the process. And when you're paying $100 plus an hour for a studio, totally bringing the process to a halt is not an option. That's not okay. Uh, no, not okay at all. Do you find that you have to... Uh switch into different modes like this is my all all business talk to the text mode i just <laughs> see what's wrong hear what's wrong yeah say what's wrong and then say later on that night uh go to a music session with musicians and do you have to like get into a different mental state i i guess i've never thought of it um i i i guess so uh but i just I wholeheartedly absolutely love making records. I just, it is, I, I love it. I can't even explain to you enough how much I love recording and mixing bands, whatever it is, whether it's a singer-songwriter or a big band or an orchestra or a metal band or whatever. I love it. I love every second of it. So when I get into a session, it never, I guess I'm not thinking about that because I'm so excited to be there. Mm -hmm. And it's so uh, honoring to me that somebody has picked me to realize this vision with them. Um, and uh, on the tech side, I would say the guys and girls that work in the techs, uh, in the tech shop, uh, are so nice. You know, everybody's super down to earth. So it, it's just never been a problem. So whether there's a frame of mind switch or not, I'm not sure. But I think being able to just relate to people on different levels has helped. Is that something that you were always able to do or is it something that you taught yourself? Uh, still learning. <laughs> Good answer. And uh, did you always want to be an engineer? <laughs> no. And you know what? I Your podcast I've listened to a lot um, and other podcasts I've listened to, other audio podcasts I've listened to a lot. And the one thing that I keep hearing that I really feel like I missed out on is people keep saying, you know, when I was a kid, I played in bands and like we went on tour and I got signed and, and you know, whatever. Either I was really interested in the studio or we needed to record an album and I was the guy who happened to know a little bit. So I jumped on. Yeah, that's a common story. Yeah, that was not me. 
Um, I was a percussionist growing up. I played drums uh, and I played clarinet um, in like, you know, school band. Um, and I played drums in some bands, but wasn't really serious. Music was always a love for me, but I didn't have that seriousness that I hear from people on the podcast typically. Um, that, that's interesting, though. Two in a row now who did not start off that way. Uh, I just spoke to a guy named Andy Marsh. He plays guitar for a band called Die Art is Murder, and he's uh, just a genius of a guy who has just accomplished so many goals he set out for himself, but one of them did not used to be music. Uh, he only really discovered it when he was at the tail end of high school, actually, and early college. Yeah, so, so right, you know, right. To each their own. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my first pass at life was uh, working with children. So, you know, nothing to do with music at all. Um, I was about to say, that's not that different than working with bands. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> if anything, that, that, that helped me get along a little bit. So, um, but yeah, when I got into college, I got a chance to go to college um, for engineering. And that's really where I hit the ground running. Um, you know, this story I also hear, but, you know, in college, you get free studio time. So I just spent every single waking minute in the studio, um, you know, recording bands and playing with the gear, figuring out what it did. I got the chance to rebuild a console, um, uh, MCI JH600. Um, so I got all these great opportunities in college to really immerse myself in the studio without having to worry about um, you know, the per hour rate or like, you know, anything like that, that's really putting pressure on. I was recording bands for free. Um, and it was okay to mess up. It was okay to make mistakes. Um, it was, you know, it was the safe place per se. How did you get to that though? How did you decide you wanted to study engineering? Because that's not, that's not just like a normal degree that you get at, at a college. It's a very tough degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so my degree is in um, audio engineering and the program that I went to, um, it's it's a mix of audio and electrical. Um, and I was um, applying to, so that college, I worked at the radio station at that college, um, uh, which we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah. The... Uh, the program came up because I was applying to other programs actually for a master's degree. Um, and I was not married. I had no kids and I just thought, you know, why not go for it? If you get in great, if not, who cares, you know, but if you get in, you can try this thing. If it doesn't work or you hate it, you have something to fall back on. You can do something else, but it's part of life is, is getting that, you know, going out and kind of stepping outside your box a little bit, even if you're mm -hmm. not really sure if it's going to work. If you do it, you succeed or you have a very good chance of succeeding. If you don't do it, you have zero chance of succeeding, right? You basically write in your own fate by not trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and like I said, I did, I loved music as a kid and I loved music growing up. I have no musical relatives at all. Zero. None of my, you know, none of my family was in music. Um, but I played drums and I played clarinet and I DJed for a while. Um, and, uh, I was interested in electronics and taking things apart and uh, manipulating things. And, you know, I did the, when I was growing up, we had TVs that were not flat screen, um, you know, and I remember taking the TV apart and my dad just losing it because... That's pretty dangerous. Exactly, because he knew I could, like, <laughs> kill myself and he just lost it. But that's what I would do. That's what, that was me as a kid, you know. Taking things apart, figuring it out, putting it back together. I love that stuff. So, um, so I went and did it. I just, I just jumped in and I did it. And I, you know, I moved. I lived at school for the first year or so, and I loved it. 
I just absolutely loved it. Maybe you can answer something for me. So um, back in my band days, um, my band used to practice at my original studio and went through a lot of gear because I bought a lot of crappy gear and it would break. And we would always give it what we called a proper burial, um, <laughs> just, just destroying it yeah. once it broke. Um, but when it came to an old school computer monitor, it was built kind of like an old TV. Yep. It just wouldn't break. No matter what we did, it just would not break. Though, though I know that with uh, modern flat screens, you just you can drop a penny on them, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> shattered forever. Um, what is it? What is it about old TVs or monitors that um, that I guess would have so much pressure, like internal pressure on it, that would help it withstand? you know, baseball bats and being dropped and, and stuff. Cause I've never yeah. been inside of one of them. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I pro I'm probably not the best person to talk about that, but I will say this, the thing I did notice when I took those things apart was, and this is really, I truly believe that, that, you know, they don't make things like they used to thing. That's an actual thing. <laughs> um, and the, the thing with the TV is if you think about a flat screen TV, where are all of the electronics in a flat screen TV in a very compact, tight space, right? Mm -hmm. If you ever open one of those old TVs up, it's like, or if you open up an 1176, there's nothing in there. It's shell for days. And then you have, you know, the innards of it are, uh, you know, far away from the wall. So, you hit it with a baseball bat, you're hitting plastic. <laughs> you know, you hit a flat screen TV with a baseball bat, you're probably crushing something in there. Yeah, done for. <laughs> right, exactly. And and it's, I do not recommend it, but super fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't do it. The only time that we would do it was if a piece of gear was just dead. Yeah, yeah. Like, <clears throat> well, you gotta yeah. you gotta do it once once in your life. But again, we don't recommend that. Yeah, yeah, don't. <laughs> it's actually kind of fun. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Don't start doing that. So actually, now, okay. So it makes sense to me how you ended up doing what you're doing. So a, a combination of audio plus taking things apart and putting them back together that makes makes perfect sense. It's always interesting to me how some audio guys, like for instance, uh, you know, we just had Dan Lancaster on Nail the Mix, and he's uh, about as non-technical of a human being as it gets. He's a fantastic mixer and producer. His stuff sounds incredible, but, uh, you know, that's just not how he thinks. And then yeah. um, you get someone like Dan Korneff on, who we had a few weeks ago, who's uh, done some incredible work, and that's totally how he thinks. And so it's definitely not a gauge for somebody's, you know, just because they know or don't know electronics, or building gear doesn't mean they're going to be a good or bad engineer. But I just think it's very, very interesting how there's a breed of engineers who come from that school. Um, I've always thought, I've always thought it's very, very interesting. And I'm also very thankful that you guys exist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it was, I mean, obviously it was an interest for me, but also uh, my very first studio experience um I got in because I knew something and I was able to do something that nobody else was able to do. The other thing was after talking to engineers, you know, as an intern, I was exposed to a lot of engineers. Um, and then as an assistant and as an engineer myself, um, it was horrifying to me to think that I'm in a session, something breaks, and I have absolutely no clue what to do. I just, I, I'm dead in the water. And although that's probably a little extreme, that thought kind of propelled me to want to know more about the gear that I'm working with so that if I'm doing a session and something goes down, I have, you know, tools in my toolkit to be able to quickly and efficiently troubleshoot something to know whether it's actually dead or I just hit it a couple times and it's good to go. That's actually really, really wise because um, 
I, I mean, you know, I'm one of them, so I am part of the problem. <laughs> but <laughs> it's it, it you maybe you wouldn't be impressed, but listeners, you would be amazed how many engineers don't know a thing about the equipment that they're using and really couldn't troubleshoot a serious problem if their life depended on it. I and and again, I think that it's just a mindset. Like you said, it has no bearing on whether you're a good mixer or not. I, to an extent, you know, I think even the guys who aren't tech savvy at all, they know what they're doing because they're listening and they've done it yes. enough times. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, but I, I feel like it's the same angle as uh, engineers who are not musicians. Now, that's always weirded me out. And I know <laughs> that, I, I, that yeah. is not as common as it used to be. But I know that there was a whole era preceding this one where that was actually really common, where yeah. producers and engineers were their own. Yeah. So it's a whole track, and you did not have to be a musician. I think nowadays, the way that most, like the next generation coming up, you know, they, most of them are going to be musicians, in my opinion. Yeah, and and it, it's a little bit different uh, in the sense that I feel like it's important for you to be able to communicate with musicians. If you yes. have zero idea, it, it's going to be very difficult for you to uh, have an efficient session with a band. Because if anything musical is off, which inevitably it will be, you know, that's your job to sit here and listen and help that band move along and get to where they need to be. Um, and you can't communicate at all. You can only talk in voltages and you can show them a schematic and all they can do is be like, look, this chord and that chord. And you're like, I don't know what, you know, you're total miss. So you need a little bit of that, I think. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really want to step up the game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 40 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. Absolutely. When I think it was okay where you could get away with it in the older days was when you had way more different jobs. Well, you had studio. the split. Like producer was, yeah, producer yeah. was just a producer. Engineer was just an engineer. Yeah. Yeah, and and those are the sessions to me uh, that that really I love. That that's how I want to work. I know it's very old. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if it's very old school. It still exists. It, it still exists. It does because I do it a lot. And and but to me, it <clears throat> the way I think about it is, if I have if my job is to do things like hold down the session technically make mic choices, make gear choices, make sure sonically everything is happening. And then I have next to me a producer 
who's doing things like, was that the right take? Where were the misses in that take? Was somebody sharp? Was somebody flat? Should we try a different chord here? Should you play open so that you get a bigger sound? Whatever. If we are splitting the duties, then neither one of us has to work double time on anything, you know? And that, to me, makes both of our jobs a little bit easier and frees us up to be a little bit more creative. I was about to say, it's not just that it's easier, it's that it's in lots of ways more effective. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it's not as prevalent these days, I don't think. It's not as prevalent, but one thing or one of the main things that we tell people, though, is that even if you're not able to have that kind of situation, you should create as much of that kind of situation in your workflow as possible. Like, for instance, um, when mixing, you know, do your the technical setup stuff on a different day or at least a different session so that you can get into the creative mindset and not have anything technical getting in your way. And so that when you are in the technical mindset, you can just zone in on that and not have to worry about, you know, the feel of the song or something. Yeah, I mean, I would say that for me, it's it's a little bit different. But when I mix a record, that is 100% true. It's very difficult for me to go through and clean a session and, you know, make sure everything's right and arrange everything and color code and label tracks and then go right into mixing. It, it, my mind just can't shift quite that fast. I need a little bit of separation. So usually what I'll do is I'll do those two things on different days. Well, and also not just your mind, but what about your ears? Because, I mean, even when you're doing the setup, you still probably have to hear some stuff. Oh, yeah, for like, sure. Yeah, I know at least like if you're replacing drums or uh, reinforcing them or making final edits or cleaning up tracks, whatever it is that you do in your process, yeah. uh, you're most likely listening to audio the, yeah. a good amount of the time. Yeah, even when I'm setting up mics for a session, I usually have something playing in the background. Um, and I would say the taking a break, being able to let your ears rest a little bit is... N- is always productive. So um, how do you divide your time now? So it sounds like the, it sounds like both your pursuits are pretty, you know, pretty all encompassing. Yeah, there's more there. I've been taking on more and more and more uh, trying to branch out a little bit and and diversify, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, my time is, I call it de-risking. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, cause I, I do live sound, um, and I do front of house and tech and consultations for, um, a lot of ministry, uh, churches, um, and, uh, you know, artists that I've worked with. Um, and then I do the studio thing, recording and mixing, and then I work at Telefunken. So, um, the time is usually split where I know that I'm going to be at Telefunken, you know, mostly days, Monday through Friday during the day. And then, you know, sessions at night or on the weekends or, you know, depending, you know, so I'm trying to arrange things so that everybody, uh, nobody loses out and I'm not letting anybody down and then still having time for that, you know, work-life balance that nobody has actually perfected yet. So that's to say you actually... You can have a life too. That's crazy. yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I have my biggest fan of all time is my wife and my daughter, I guess. Um, and you know, when we I'm sure that helps, I mean, look, I, I've met, I, I won't say any names, but I, I met this guy who we recorded an album together and I met his wife. And all she could talk about was how much she hated this guy's music. And I just couldn't. Wow. I, I couldn't <laughs> That's even. That's so ima- brutal. <laughs> well, I couldn't even imagine it. Like, I could not imagine it. And I was fortunate enough to meet my wife through music. Um, and she has just always been um, 100% on board. Nothing less. So wait, wait. So his wife didn't even. It wasn't even like I hate that he works so much. Oh no, uh, no. Like 
or it was like his music sucks. Well, I I think it was more like she had spent he had not uh divvied out the priorities well and he had, you know, spent so much time on his music that she now hated the music instead of hating him. You know, so we would go I I would say uh-huh, I see. you know, so okay. I, I would say something like uh oh we're you know, we're going to be in the studio this weekend. Are you going to swing by and, you know, take a listen and hang out and she's like no, I would never. No, I'm not going to do that, you know. I can't believe he's still doing this and stuff like that. So the bottom line for me is having that huge amount of support regardless. You know, my wife doesn't care what the record sounds like. She doesn't care if I sell a million records or if I sell zero records. She's always going to be my fan. She's always going to support me because that's how that's how we do. That's incredible. Um, I kind of wish every everybody who took it upon themselves to make a creative field their job had that me too i would definitely definitely would make their lives a lot easier i would not be doing what i'm doing right now without her there's no question no question so you brought up something interesting though you said that you thought that the guy did not prioritize his work-life balance (laughs) well enough to where so it's not necessarily that his wife was the problem it sounds more like he was the problem and she just got tired of it. And I actually think that that's something I see very often that the wife starts as supportive. Um, and then over the years, it just yep. <laughs> like chisels away at her, at, at her will, like little by little by little Ye- until 10 years later, she just can't handle the fact that the dude still even owns a guitar. Dude, absolutely. And I mean, look, this is a huge thing. And they don't teach you this in school, but I, I've heard this from many engineers. You have to, there, there's two different things setting here, right? There's you setting priorities and then you actually living out those priorities, right? You can say till you're blue in the face, my family is my priority. But if you're in the studio 24 seven for the next 10 years, and you miss every birthday and every anniversary and every Christmas and every whatever, then clearly they're not the priority. You need to be able to say, no, that, you know, I don't work these days because I'm going to go spend time with my family or, you know, I, it's my wife's birthday. So we're going to go do something no matter what the gig is. And alternately on the other side, my wife knows that when I say I'm going to be home at six, that probably means like one or two in the morning, right? <laughs> so like she she has a lot of give for me. She has a lot of movement. And she's been with me long enough that she knows what a studio session includes. She knows what making a record entails. She knows the time it takes. And we both have to be aware of that because if either one of us starts to fault on that a little bit, the other one suffers. You brought up something interesting about your actions matching what you say your commitments are. I just uh, made a video for URM. By the time this comes out, the video will have come out just about how if you say you've got uh, an extreme goal, well, then you have to put extreme action behind that goal. And if you're not putting in the extreme action, you should ask yourself if that goal really is something you want or you're just in love with saying that you want it. And there's a big difference there. And um, that goes over to personal life as well. Like you said, you can say your personal life and relationships are important, but until you make them important, they kind of aren't. Absolutely. And and I think that, it, you know, you can roll that over into your entire life, whether it's your professional career, your personal life, whatever it is. I mean, look, if you tell a band one thing and they have totally unreal expectations based on what you told them, guess who's not going to be happy, right? And that's not going to make for a good ending. It's just never going to make, never. Nobody's going to be happy because, uh, the one, they're going to have unrealistic expectations and they're going to grind you for those expectations. And then they're going to be unhappy when you don't meet them. B, you're going to start hating them because they're grinding you for things that you feel are unrealistic. And C, you guys are probably not going to work together again 
because you hate each other. Yeah, and it, and it totally negates the point of what you're doing. Again, for me, I I just wholeheartedly love making records, and I love the people that I spend time with to make those records. It's just opposite of what I should be doing to create expectations that aren't realistic. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and I feel like what I've heard a lot, which I, I, I don't know how true it is. And again, I don't, I don't want to set out any negative anything. But, you know, when people would talk about the industry to me, they would say things like, watch out in the music industry, you know, you know, whatever. People lie, cheat, steal, blah, 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 blah. I haven't experienced that, but I think it's really what you make of it, you know? I mean, how's that different than any other industry? Well, for, it's just people. Exactly, exactly. And that that is that notion of working with people, you know, um, uh, in, in any format. But, you know, this goes back to like, how do I get gigs? Hey, can you tell me how to get gigs? How do you get gigs? And it's like, you go... And you meet people and you talk to people face to face and you make relationships and those relationships blossom into something. And then you're in the studio and while you're in the studio, you're forming more relationships and you're talking to people and you're having conversations. It's the human element. Absolutely. And uh, not to mention you're wowing with your work <laughs> yeah, the well, entire right, yeah, time. Well, right. I mean, look, I, I Dave Pensato. Do you, does, do you know him? Not personally, but you, you know the name. No, no, no. I don't know him personally, but uh, he's definitely the one of the guys that started the whole online audio education thing that we now have built a whole company off of. Like that's, right. He was one of the guys who was doing it, even though it was for free on YouTube. Right. He's one of the guys who was doing it before it became a thing, before, you know, exactly. He's, exactly. So of course, yeah. So uh, I was at a workshop with him in Nashville at Blackbird, and he said something that was totally uh, not life changing, but very, very important to me, which I kind of knew already. Which is that being a good engineer is a given. Yep, it's assumed. You don't get any points for being a good engineer. If you're not a good engineer, you may lose a little bit, but when you walk into a big session or any session and you're not a good engineer, that's that's just one of those things that you have to be. That's the starting point, right? And that is, you know, how do you get that? Well, you do things like, you know, I was talking about, I did all this free work in college for four years. I recorded bands for free. That's how you get that experience. And then you go and you be an intern and your stuff, all of the online education that you guys do and that Dave does and that, you know, all these people do, you're gathering information, you're gathering information. You know, does that mean that, you know, every session is going to be perfect and you have to be the best engineer in the world? No, but you have to walk in and be able to have a session that's efficient and it's not wasting people's time. And you're getting done something that's being progressive, right? Actually, trying to be the best engineer in the world is sometimes counterproductive. Oh, for sure. Um, it's uh, merely being super competent is a fantastic goal <laughs> because, uh, well, for a few different reasons. I'm not saying sell yourself short. Yeah. Just saying that ultra competency is actually pretty rare. And if you can achieve ultra competency, the byproduct is you probably will be one of the best if in your region at the very least. Um, ultra competency is not as common as people may think. But I feel like that should be the goal because it's almost like you can take ultra competency and map that into tangible, tangible things like uh, – what does it mean? Like, maybe it means I need to become an incredible drum editor. Which DAWs do I need to become an incredible drum editor on? Which drum editors do I know? How fast do they normally move? Do they use macros? All these questions that you can answer, yes, no, yes, no. Okay, I'll do this, 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 and this. As opposed to just thinking to yourself, I'm going to be amazing or something. Yeah, and, and, uh, and one of the things that I do love about this industry in particular, which I guess, again, you could you could really fold out into any industry, but this one in particular is that I'm always learning. 
constantly learning, right? Just It's just a repeated, uh, you know, every session trying to take something in, no matter how small it is, uh, because that is what is going to make you better in the end. It, did you ever have a time period where you were like, yeah, I'm good. Like, no, uh, never. I don't need that info, no. right? No, no. And <laughs> do you do you know any great engineers who have ever even given that off? Um, <laughs> no, I uh, no. Oh, that sounds yeah. like a guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna say no, but what I will say is I have heard some engineers talk well in their right to be like to be a little cocky per se. Well, well in their right is it is not what I mean. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, like w- one thing is if you're, if you do great work and the world agrees that you do great work yeah, and you kind of know it, that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, for I sure. mean, you're just, you're just accepting reality. Um, but I still have never heard any of those guys who are pretty confident be like, there's nothing left to learn. Oh no, it. never. I, I got, oh, I got yeah. this down. No, 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 no. And, and even the big guys, you always hear them saying things like, you know, uh, Oh, I felt like I was, you know, in a little bit of a rut. So I just changed everything. You know, I just went for it. I hear that all the time. Yeah, so uh, no, absolutely not. It's, it's a lifelong pursuit of learning for sure. How, how do you go about learning now? Cause like, it's a, uh, we're talking about balance now. Where do you find time for that, or is it just built in? Well, I do think some of it's built in because um, <clears throat> uh, no session is ever the same, even if I'm working with the same band for a week. Um, and I, I'm i working with people who are extremely talented, and they, they teach me stuff all the time. Um, on the other hand, I seek things, you know, like it's an active process for me to go out and seek something new to make my, you know, to put another trick in my bag per se. It, does it, how often do you find that happening? All the time. I mean, I, uh, for instance, for instance, um, I just uh, started uh, learning this program smart by uh, Rational Acoustics. Um, I have never heard of it, but I'm looking it up and it will be in the show notes because cool. I've never heard of yeah, it. Yeah, check it out. I mean, basically what it is, is it's a, to, at the very, this is like a huge 30,000 foot view, but it's basically software that we use to uh, tune rooms and it gives you, it's just massive. You You have to check it out. But basically what I use it for is to tune uh, live PAs and to tune studios. So it will tell me, um, well, it'll tell me a lot of things, but the, the immediate things that I want to know are phase coherency, uh, the frequency response of the room in a real time, uh, graphical layout, um, the impulse. So how, uh, let's say one speaker is arriving at me a millisecond later than the other speaker. That's important for me to know because that can have a whole host of problems along with it, like uh, comb filtering or phase anomalies or all that stuff. So I'm using, I'm learning this program so that I can better tune PA systems so when I do live shows, I can have it running live and I have the RTA running and I have a transfer curve so I know about where I want to be. So even if I don't know the room very well, I can graphically see what's happening in the room. And that with a combination of me literally listening to what's happening, I can usually avoid things like feedback problems, phase anomalies, you know, too much low end stuff like that. I'm actually looking at it right now. Smart with two A's. Yes. This, yes. Uh, this program looks incredible actually. Oh, it's enormous. It's 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 just a fantastic program. I can't say enough about it and I am I've just scratched the surface. I've been using it for about uh like 2 months now. Um and it's just been huge. I just the work has 
just been really enlightening to me. You know, this uh, makes me think of something because this basically what you're describing is the exact opposite of stagnation. Um, (laughs) You know, always, I I really do believe that if you stay in the same spot, you die, you evolve in reverse. I agree. But uh, I've been to certain studios where like I've flown out to work with people and walked in and been like, wow, I recognize this place because it's exactly what my studio was like in 2003. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I didn't have like an SSL or anything. It was, I'm talking like a Delta 1010 yeah. and, or Oralex and some SM57s strewn about that sort of deal. Yeah. Um, where it's, I can date it based on what version of the software they've got. Like, I know that they haven't updated since 2004 and it blows my mind. I don't understand how that's possible. And then I talk to people on here all the time and they're like, yeah, I'm checking out this new incredible thing, or I just learned this great trick or, or whatever it is. There's always something that has got their attention right then and there that they're, uh, they're moving their craft forward with. It's, yeah. it's very interesting, the difference. Yeah. And I mean, for me, usually what kicks it off is something either happens that, you know, I have to say, I don't know the answer, but I will find it out for you. Or something peaks, like inevitably, if you work consistently, well, I guess, hopefully, if you work consistently, your (laughs) hearing and your ability to hear things critically will get better. So, you know, as I work, my critical listening gets better and I'm able to discern things much easier. So I'm going to start to tweak as I hear better to make my listening experience not only better, but translatable to the real world. So, you know, I've been mixing at Telefunken for almost three years now in the same room, but I am constantly tweaking. Constantly tweaking the speakers, constantly checking to see if I can make the room translate even better to the outside world. Because if it sounds good in here, that's great. But if it sounds good in here and sounds terrible to everybody else, it doesn't really matter, right? No, it definitely doesn't matter. And also, just because it, sound, it sounded good in that room three years ago. Right, exactly. Uh like, you know, when you first started working for them, yeah. like just because you, whatever you were doing was working out then doesn't mean it's going to work out now because the world evolves and my workflow, around you. Yeah. And my workflow and how I do things is drastically different from what I was doing three years ago. I, I can, I can imagine. What's a one thing that you've dropped doing that you can think <sighs> of? What comes to mind? Um, what have I dropped doing? Let's see here. I don't think I've ever really asked anybody that. Yeah, and, but. It, and from my standpoint, it's a really difficult question because I find that the evolution of my workflow is things naturally drop out in a slow progression. It's very rare mm-hmm. that I ever just like cut something. Um, I will say that uh, something that I've really honed in on, especially I would say more in the past five years, But really, since I've come here because of all the critical listening that I've been doing is trying to take what I'm recording at the very beginning, right from the source and making it as very close to the final product as it possibly can be just with nothing, you know, no compression, no EQ, just mic choice and mic placement starting there. Because that really makes it so that when I start processing things, they just get better. I say that to people and they're like, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you do it? But it's not as obvious as I think people think it is. And to me, I would rather enhance than have to go in there and badger and beat something into submission. It's. I think I thought about why it's not that obvious because, you know, everybody... You know, it's one of the audio cliches, get it right at the source. And obviously it's true. Um, but if it was that obvious, then we wouldn't need to say it over and over yeah. again. So I started <laughs> wondering to myself, why is it that that it's not as obvious as it seems? 
Like, what is more obvious than that? Not much. But why does this, like, why does the actual implementation of this escape people? So I, so I started thinking about situation that I've been in where I wanted to get it right from the source, but uh, either I lacked a skill which allowed me to fully exploit the situation, or um, I felt like it wasn't possible to get it any better at the source. And I was just like, oh, we'll just pull this up, this tool out to fix it, um, and we'll just keep going. And it's a slippery slope because then you pull out another tool to fix something else. And then before you know it, uh, you're not getting things right at the source uh, and you're creating the exact problem, even though you think you're getting things right at the source. And so there's a lot of self-deception involved. Uh, and I think that for a lot of up-and-coming engineers who don't have a mentor, don't work at a studio, that self-deception is hard to, it's hard to spot because how would you know? How would you know that you're doing it if there's nobody to really tell you and you've never seen anybody else do it well before? Kind of the same thing happens like when we tell people you need to play harder with your right hand and the picking articulation has everything to do with your guitar tone. And they're like, well, I don't understand why my guitar sound like shit. I'm a good guitar player. Yeah. And they end the conversation there. And what do you say? No, you're not. You suck. Uh, (laughs) I've heard your tracks. You're not a good guitar player. Like, where does that go? Then they say, but I am, I've been playing for 15 years. I know I'm good. Everybody says I'm good. I'm fucking good. Fuck you. And then it's, where where exactly do you go unless that exact person is brought into like you know a boot camp or a seminar or they get an internship or they get to work with really really great guitar players and or they get a guitar teacher imagine that and just somehow get shown by other people that their right hand technique is atrocious and if you just move the pick over to this angle it's going to solve everything or whatever it might be, like stop death gripping with your left hand, whatever it might be. I think that lots of these things are just, they're just tough to grasp on your own if you don't have a frame of reference. And so that that frame of reference, I think, is what throws everyone off. Yeah. And I mean, look, by no stretch of the imagination do I have this nailed packed down. And there are Hundreds, right, and hundreds upon thousands of things that could make your source not good right from the start. Everything from whatever the player, the instrument, the room, the signal chain, whatever it is. And I think as I did it more and more, I was able to suss, or I am able to suss things out, and some things you cannot correct for. You know, you can't pick the band up in the middle of the session and be like, I don't like this place. Let's move to another one. You know, that that's not really how it works. And other factors play into that. Though I have seen it happen. Well, right. Yeah. Right. But I mean, you know, if you're thinking about. Very rarely. Yeah. I mean, you're on a really tight budget. And so you pick a place. Um, you know, that you can stay within the budget or you have a really tight budget. So you do it in your house, you know, and you can't always correct for the Mack truck that just hit the tree outside your living room in the middle of the perfect take, you know? No, or the inherent electrical problems that are just because the wiring in your home is yeah. 30 years old and it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've I've been to home studios that have noise issues. Nobody can figure it out, and it's usually something like when the dishwasher goes on, all the mic prees get this weird noise in them, but nobody thought about the dishwasher because it's not in the room or the furnace, or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, I mixed a record, and the vocalist did all his vocals at his house. And as I started to compress and bring that stuff up, dogs were barking in the background in the middle of the take. You know, it's stuff like that that it's very difficult to correct for if you're going to do it at your house. Um, so you have to be really aware of that stuff. You almost have to be sharper if you're going to be in that situation. Absolutely. Um, 
that's why actually on Nail the Mix when well, first of all, no session is ever perfect. No, 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 no. Uh, doesn't matter who doesn't matter who recorded it. No. It's never perfect. But when we send people stuff, we send them what we got from the mixers and the band. So it is what it, it is what it is. Like that's what got released. But and oftentimes there will be like a bad edit here, a bad edit there, something that got through, and it you know that's a normal part of life. And some people complain about it, and we always tell them, look, man. That that's actually far more beneficial to you than if we were to send you something that was a hundred percent pre-cleaned and perfect because real life will never be that way. It just won't. Like it, part of being a good engineer is knowing how to problem solve on the fly, uh, and whether that means that you know how to do it via technical. Uh, electrical information and gear building or whether you just know how to you know eliminate a bad piece of gear immediately and get something else that'll get the job done real fast up or whatever you know how to say the right thing that solves the the problem of the moment it doesn't matter what your method is uh, to be good at this stuff you need to be able to solve problems in the moment incredibly fast yeah absolutely and you would be um putting yourself at a disadvantage i feel like if you thought or if you i don't even know if this is possible but let's say at the very beginning of your career you only worked in the best possible studios with the best gear and the best musicians and everything is the best and that's all you ever worked on and then all of a sudden one time you got to go into something that's even a little bit compromised you're totally at a disadvantage as opposed to you record in, you know, when I was in bands, when I was in high school, our method of recording was taking the boom box, finding a balance between two guitar amps, a bass amp and a full drum set somewhere in the middle of the room, pressing record and just thrashing at it, you know, that n <laughs> yep. it never came out sounding good. It just was a distorted mess all the time. But when you go from that to a big studio where everything's beautiful, the room sounds amazing, you have amazing mics and amazing gear, the job becomes like a thousand times easier. And you appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I man, you're just so thankful to be there. And everything just gets bumped with this positivity that's like, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that appreciation goes a, a really, really long way, too. I agree. Um, so, Jake, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you, and uh, I really do hope that we can do it again. Um, it's been awesome. Oh, man, it's it's absolutely my pleasure, and I would love to do it again anytime, man. Well, have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you so much. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time with our Amplitude and T-Rex analog modeling software. Now, IK has created the ultimate all-in-one bundle for bands and engineers. The Total Studio 2 Max, combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia, musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.